Well, you can open your Bibles if you haven't already to Mark chapter 11. Last week we finished our look at Mark chapter 11 by looking at verse 26. We considered last week the triumphal entry when Jesus rode in as King of Jerusalem upon a a donkey and was heralded by many. We considered His cursing of the fig tree representative of Israel, that that had leaves but had no fruit. And we saw the cleansing of the temple when Jesus sought to clean things and clean house and said, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it to be a den of robbers. He was the inspector general looking for fruit, and fruit wasn't there with Israel. And and the great reality of Jesus inspecting our lives is that He longs to see fruit. And if He sees fruit, we gain His approval. And if we don't, if He doesn't see fruit, then Jesus will reject us. Well, as you may or may not recall, um, towards the end of my message, I was really rushing through the text, spending only a, a small bit of time, maybe five minutes, on verses 22 through 26, um, when Jesus responds to Peter, when he said in verse 21, Rabbi, look at the fig tree which you have cursed, has withered. And Jesus answered and, and said these things. And, and I was really rushing through that. Now, there's several reasons for that. First of all, it's the nature of most sermons. I'm not sure if you've noticed this. You probably have. Most sermons, we've got three points. It's really top-heavy, front-loaded on the first point. Second point tends to be a little bit shorter. And the third point tends to be shorter yet. That's for a couple reasons. Is because one, first of all, pastors and preachers always study a lot at the beginning because that's where they know what they're going to say. Towards the end, they don't know what they're going to say. And so things get shorter. And also, your attention span. You may be interested in what's going to be said first. And then as it goes on, there's less interest. There. You've got to like kick it up and going so faster it comes. That is one reason why we zip through that. But a, a second is because they were, they were a bit difficult. All right? Now, I... Um, do like to do exposition, just taking the, the flow of the text as it comes. Um, and I like to say, I, 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 we, we pull every rock and we look underneath every rock and we look every place. And yet sometimes I can kind of duck. If I go really fast, I just say, well, I just didn't have time to look at that. Truth is, I don't really know sometimes of what's going on in the text. And that was a little bit about what was, what was happening last week. Well, we had an elders meeting this past Monday, and Darren and Phil and I were there, and um, so we always do, I always just say, any feedback on, on anything that's happened since last time we met, or even before that, that's fine, feedback on the music, or on my message, or on the groups that meet, or anything going on, and, and um, well, we ended up talking about verses 22 through 26 for about 30 minutes or so, and uh, Phil Gusky recommended I revisit these verses this week. So, I'm somewhat under divine elder mandate here this morning, which I'm glad to do. They are practical application for us, for sure. Uh, they have been challenging, so I've been thinking about them this week. Um, but we'll slow down and we'll take these verses, verses 22 through 26. Now, on the one hand, they're not so difficult. I mean, it's real easy. There's a call to believe, there's a call to pray, and there's a call to forgive. In fact, these three... Calls are the basis of my title this morning. Believe, pray, and forgive. And these three calls are the basis of my outline this morning. Believe, pray, forgive. So on the one hand, it's really, they're really quite easy. And yet on the other hand, the text is sort of difficult because it's difficult to know, one, why did he talk about this right after the fig tree? Um, but why did this flow of thought? I mean, we can understand believing, we can understand praying, but what about forgiving? Why, why did that come in here? Um, also, we just see the reach of some of these commands. The, the, these, the things taught here are so big that it's like hard for us to believe or hard to wrap our hands around. I mean, he says we can move mountains when we pray. He says that we should believe we have received the answer to our prayers. And if we believe we have received the answers to our prayers, and He calls us to forgive, He says we should not hold anything against anyone. These are like huge things He speaks here. But we'll tackle them one by one. Believe, pray, and forgive. Let's read the text. After Peter pointed out, look at the fig tree which you cursed, Jesus said, Head Faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, 
and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted to him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they will be granted to you. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. We can see this aspect of belief right there in verse 22. Have faith in God. You can see it there in verse 23. The one who says this mountain cast, taken up, cast into the sea and does not doubt, but believes. There it is. Believe again. We see praying coming in verse 24. Therefore, all things which you pray and ask. And then belief kind of slides in there again. Believe that you have received them because believing and praying are really two sides of the, the same um, stone in many ways. And, and then we see forgiveness coming here in verse 5. When you stand praying, forgive. Again, prayer comes in there again, but particularly he's talking about Standing, praying, worshiping maybe, and forgiveness and forgiving. And so you see those three themes come right up there. What are the three themes again? Okay, the same again. Believe, pray, and forgive. There we go. Believe, pray, and forgive. Now, Jesus starts here in verse 22. Have faith in God. Believe in God. Trust in God is what he's saying. Now, the context here, of course, is Peter saw this fig tree withered and, and he was kind of shocked. He said, look, you, you just said, cursed be this tree or let, let no one eat from you again. And it, and it, it withered from the roots up. And, and look at this, it's amazing. And Jesus wasn't quite as impressed. He just said, believe. I said it, believe it. And then in verse 23, he gives you the extreme illustration of what the power of God can do. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted to him. In other words, if you think it's incredible that God can destroy a little fig tree, and this fig tree may have been bigger than we think, okay, but if you think that God can just destroy a tree, what do you think about a mountain? I tell you, God can move a mountain through prayers. When we believe in God, He can do wonderful things. And throughout Mark... This has been a theme of Mark, is to get people to believe. There's constantly people who don't believe. The disciples don't see. They don't understand. They don't believe. There are others who do believe. He commends them in their faith. But it's, it's almost a gospel that's really, really kind of talking about us, getting us to believe and, and getting us to trust. In fact, that's the very first chapter, very first words out of Jesus' mouth in this gospel. It's not an accident. Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the Gospel of God, saying, The time is fulfilled and the Kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. That's what Jesus wants. Right, right from the start, He says, Listen, the Kingdom of God is at hand. I am here. So turn from your ways. Repent from your sins. And believe in the Gospel. Believe in the good news. The King of the Messiah is here. As it says right in the beginning of Mark, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. God, the Son of God has come, the Savior of the world. And throughout Mark, some believed and some didn't. We see an example, one who believed with a woman with a hemorrhage. Remember, she just touched the fringe of Jesus' garment. And then after some discussion, do you remember the last thing he said to her? He said, daughter, your faith has made you well. Believing has cured you of this ill that has been tormenting you for 12 years. And then just right at that moment, news came back uh, to the synagogue official that his daughter had died. And you remember what Jesus said to this man? He said, do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. And believing and trusting, then the daughter was raised from the dead. And to the father who brought his son to be healed, and the disciples couldn't heal the boy. Remember that? Jesus is up on the Mount of Transfiguration. The disciples are down here trying to heal this, this boy, and they couldn't. And the father said, Oh, well, can you heal him if you can? And Jesus said, If you can, of course I can. All things are possible for him who believes. And then the disciples said, Why, why couldn't we cast the demon out of this? Man, why couldn't, we, why couldn't we have done this? 
says this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. It comes out only by believing. It only comes out by trusting. Matthew adds fasting there. Just it's an expression of, of prayer and trust and fasting. Just belief. In order to cast the demons out, you needed to believe. And this promise that Jesus said to this man, all things are possible for him who believes, sounds exactly like our, our text in verse 23, right? All things are possible for he who believes. Truly I say to you, if you say to this mountain, be taken up and be thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes in him, who says it's going to happen, it's going to be granted to him. Huge promise. Now, one of the major difficulties of this passage, this verse here, is that we've never seen anyone pray like this. Um, we've never seen anyone pray and an entire mountain thrown into the sea. Not Moses. Not David. Not Daniel. Not Elijah. Not Jeremiah. Not Jesus. Unless, of course, last week I considered a total spurious interpretation perhaps. He's talking about that Mount Moriah destroying that. Maybe had some allusions to that. But, certainly the application here has to do with a, a mountain moving into the depths of the sea. And, and maybe it speaks about how weak our faith is. That nobody's ever lived save Jesus. Jesus chose not to do that, however. But maybe no one who ever lived has faith like this, perhaps. But this... Statement also speaks of the, the power of God. How powerful God is. That God can take a mountain and throw it into the heart of the sea. But I, I think the point here that Jesus is speaking about is intentional overstating of the point. A hyperbole is what it's called. Throwing beyond. Right? He's just casting beyond. But He's saying if you're marveling at this fig tree, you know there are greater things that, that can happen. Because God can do wondrous things if you but believe. Think about the number of things that God has done to those who believe. For those who believed. Moses, he struck the Nile with his staff. That was an act of faith. And what happened to the water? It turned to blood. When Moses struck the dust of the air, gnats swarmed all throughout the land of Egypt. Or, or when he took the handfuls of soot from the kiln and threw it in the air, boils upon all the Egyptians. When he stretched out his staff toward the sky and God sent hail down Moses acting in faith in all those instances, whether it was a locust in the darkness or even telling Pharaoh the death of the firstborn is coming to you and to all your servants in every house in the land of Egypt. And the whole reason why Moses did these things is because Israel cried out in their distress and God heard their cry and remembered their covenant and they were crying in faith and so God helped them and came to them. Do you think that moving a mountain is too difficult for the Lord who can perform the ten plagues? Or consider how God sustained the people of Israel. When Israel laughed and Egypt was following Him, He put a pillar of fire right between Israel and Egypt. Protected them all night long. Or God separated the Red Sea when they passed through it. Drowning the Egyptians who followed them. God provided water for all the Israelites. Twice. And throughout for 40 years in the wilderness. For 40 years, God fed them with manna every day. Except twice on, on Friday, so to meet the Sabbath. Doubled every Friday. Just a bumper crop every Friday. Do you remember how Amalek was defeated when Moses held up his hands? Aaron and her had to be on each elbow. And when his hands were up, Israel was winning. And when his hands fell down, Israel was losing. So they helped hold his hands up. That is the power of God. You think that moving a mountain is too difficult for the Lord? Or what about entering the promised land? When he came to Jericho, right? Everybody marched around and they blew trumpets. They conquered a city by, by marching around, shouting and blowing a trumpet. And what happened to the wall? The wall fell out. fell flat so they could walk right in. The city was defenseless totally. Do you remember when the Lord delivered up the Amorites in the hand of Israel? Joshua said, O sun, stand still at Gibeon, O moon in the valley of Aijalon. And so the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation avenged themselves and their enemy. Do you think moving a mountain is too difficult if God can stop the sun for a day? 
The list of things the Lord has done go on and on. Whether Elijah fed with ravens or fire come down from heaven to consume his sacrifice in the altar when he prayed to the Lord against the prophets of Baal or, or even been taken up in a whirlwind. He can take someone who's on their dying day and bring them right up to heaven so people could watch. He filled the widow's jar of oil so it would never run out or cured Laman of his, Naaman of his leprosy or floated an axe head so it could be returned to its owner or protected Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace or delivered Daniel from the hungry lions. Do you think moving a mountain is too difficult for the Lord? And what about the miracles of Jesus? We've been through the Gospel of Mark. We've seen all of His miracles so far. What miracles have we seen? Does anyone remember the miracles in Mark? They should just come off our lips. How many miracles did He do? What, what did He do? Anyone? Yes, Debbie, what's one miracle? He fed 5,000 people. That's right. Do you think moving a mountain is too difficult for the Lord? What else did He do? Adults, you can answer too. That's fine. Yes, Carl? Yeah, restore the withered hand. Mark chapter 3. Yes, Caleb? He what? Rose Lazarus from the dead. Yeah, we didn't read that in Mark, but John chapter 11 speaks of that. Nathan? He walked on water. Yep. What else did Jesus do? We got some? Uh, Gage? If you answered once, you're done. Okay, I'm not going to call on you twice. So you're done. Can you be what? Okay. Yep, that was not the Gospel of Mark. That's John 5. But he did heal a lame man. Remember on the stretcher who came down from the roof? That's what I thought you were going to say. Mark chapter 2. He, he walked away. Yes, Michaeli. Okay, he rose from the dead. We're going to see that, right? In Mark chapter 16. That's right. And if he rose from the dead, can he move a mountain? Certainly. Certainly. What else do we see? Yeah, Andrew. Restored sight to the blind. Restored sight to the blind, yep. What about the ears? Remember that? Restored hearing to the deaf. He fed 5,000 one time. He fed 4,000 on another occasion. Uh, yes, Jared. He cast out lots of demons. In fact, there are many passages that say how he cast out everybody. He healed all diseases. We could go on. We could go on. But enough there that these should just kind of flow off our lips of all that Jesus did. And I just say this. Do you think that moving a mountain is too difficult for the Lord? He's done miraculous things. He can do miraculous things. Jesus calls us merely to believe that He can. Passage of Scripture that Phil read for us this morning, Ephesians 3, 20 and 21 Contains a promise that's equally as big. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations. Right? Describes the amazing power of God. Not only can God do everything we ask for, He can do everything that we can dream for. He's able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. So if you can think of something, God can do even beyond what you can think. That God can do more than we ask for, more than we dream for, more abundantly, far more abundantly, beyond all that we ask or think. It's an expression of the omnipotence of God. That He's in heaven, He does whatever He pleases. Nothing is too difficult for the Lord. It's a statement of the omniscience of God, uh, the omnipotence of God. And that's what verse 23 really is. It's a statement of the omnipotence of God. It's easy for God to wither up a tree. And He can do far more beyond that. Do you believe that? God can do all these things. And we just need to believe and trust that He can do things. He can turn wayward children back. He can restore marriages. He can provide abundance of blessing in businesses. I mean, you start thinking about what, what's your need. You just even think right now, what is, what is the need in your family? Maybe you need some employment. Maybe you need a little extra. Maybe, maybe you need some relationships resolved. Maybe you need, who knows. Just believe and trust that God can help in your trouble. He can move mountains. He can do all these miracles. Certainly, He can help you. Well, that's my first point, believe. Let's go to my second point, pray. First and second point really intersect, right? As I had mentioned before. Therefore, I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they will be granted to you. Here it is. 
a vast promise. All things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they will be granted to you. That, that is a huge promise. Do you ever pray for things maybe that you don't believe you're going to do? You just kind of pray, oh God, maybe, but it's really not going to happen. God doesn't like those kind of prayers. He wants us to pray and come boldly and believe. And this isn't the only time Jesus has ever made a, a huge um, promise like this. Consider some more. Matthew 7, verse 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened unto you. There it is. If we just continue to ask and ask of the Lord, we'll receive. If we knock and we just keep knocking, we'll enter in. If we seek, we'll find it. Consider more. John 14, 13 and 14. Whatever you ask in My name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask Me anything in My name, I will do it. John 15, 7. If you abide in Me and My words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. Whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. 1 John 3.22 or 1 John 5. And this is the confidence that we have before Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked of Him. Incredible promises. And it's, you know, almost too good to be true. Have you ever... Um, heard such good news that you wanted it repeated to you again? Like, what's that? What's that did you say? Did, can you say that again? And, and that's almost like what, what I need to say here, verse 24, I need to say it again. I say to you, all things which you pray and ask, believe that you've received them and they'll be granted to you. You know, sometimes our, our children ask us, well, our, our younger children do, our older children are beyond this a little bit. Don't get beyond this, Stephanie. So they'll ask, hey, Mom and Dad, can I have a cookie? Can I have some dessert? And, you know, if it's pushing 5 o'clock and we're going to have dinner at 6, kids, you know the universal answer. Can I have a cookie, right? What do your parents say? No. But what happens that chance when they say, Sir, what? What did you say? Can I have a cookie? Yes, you may have a cookie. It's like, whoa, yeah, yeah. But it's, it's almost so astonishing and so, so amazing that they will ask again and again. And likewise, the statement of Jesus, I say to you, all things which you pray and ask, believe you receive them, they'll be granted to you. What did you say, Jesus? You said all things? If we pray, we'll receive all things? Even moving mountains? You know, I've never, as I alluded to, seen or heard of anybody moving in mountains, but I, I do know that there were those, have been those, there are those who move men through prayer. Two men come to my mind, Hudson Taylor and George Mueller. Hudson Taylor was a missionary to China. God blessed in an abundant way. He pledged, this was his aim of his ministry, to move man through God by prayer alone. To move men through God by prayer alone. And so he prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and just sought the Lord. I think Hudson Taylor is one who never asked for support financially and yet had abundant blessings. I remember reading his biography. It's a good book. It's a great book. He talked about being in the mission field and being down on his finances and needing some, some money to come. And so he and his, his compound of Christians there reaching out to the, the Chinese people would pray and would pray and would pray and they say, oh God, we need this. And just as things were down, they'd receive a check from England, unasked for, but came. And that check had to have been sent like eight months before. That's how God answers prayer. The answer is on the way even before we begin praying. George Mueller wrote this of why he began his orphan houses. You know, George Mueller... If you don't know about him, he lived in the England 1700s, 1800s. He was Spurgeon's era, so 1850s, 1880s, something like that. He had all these orphan houses and he supported several tens of thousands of orphans through his years. These were true orphans whose parents had died. He said, why did you start the orphan houses? And here's what he said. He said, I had constantly... Kate had constantly cases brought before me which proved that one of the special things 
which the children of God needed in our day was to have their faith strengthened. I long to have something to point to, a visible proof that our God and Father is the same faithful God as He ever was, as willing as ever to prove Him to be the living God in our days as formerly to all who put their trust in Him. And I, I long to set something before the children of God whereby they might see that He does not forsake even in our day those who rely upon Him. As I long to be instrumental in strengthening their faith by giving them not only the instances from the Word of God of His willingness and ability to help all those who rely upon Him, but to show them by proofs that He is the same in our day. Now, if I, a poor man, simply by prayer and faith, obtained without asking any individual the means for establishing and carrying on an orphan house, there would be something with which, with the Lord's blessing, might be instrumental in strengthening the faith of the children of God, besides being a testimony to the consciences of the unconverted of the reality of the things of God. This, then, was the primary reason for establishing the orphan house. I certainly did for my heart's desire to be used by God to benefit the bodies of poor children, bereaved of both parents, and seek in other respects with the help of God to do them good in this life. But still, the first and primary object of the work was and still is that God might be magnified by the fact that the orphans under my care are provided with all they need only by prayer and faith without anyone being asked by me or by my fellow laborers whereby it may be seen that God is faithful still and hears prayer still. God provides. And He made it His habit not to ask anyone for money. Now, He made needs known, but He never asked anybody for money. And God provided abundantly. And, and so He said, then that would strengthen the faith of many people. And I just know that for me... My heart. I wish that somebody to have stories of God accomplishing similar things in my life. And I think one of those things is the church we have here. It's something that we have prayed for and longed for. I mean, if you'd have told us, whatever, 12 years ago we moved up here to Rockford, we'd, we'd have a building, we'd have 100 people who love each other, who serve each other, I'd have been astonished. The Lord has built our body. We've prayed much for it. God has answered prayers. There are things going on at the church I could never orchestrate in a million years. But God does it. And God works in your hearts. And God gives you desires to be here and be with the body. And, and this church stands a testimony of what God does through prayer. How about you? Are there things in your life you just say, wow, just, that's a testimony to prayer. Well, in order for God to answer such prayers, we need to be praying such prayers. There are some reasons why prayers go unanswered, even though this is a universal promise. I read some other universal promises, but they had some caveats to them. One reason why prayers go unanswered is because of a lack of faith. Because of a lack of faith. That's right here in verse 24. Therefore I say to you, all things which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they will be granted to you. Right? The, the transfiguration when Jesus was up there, the disciples couldn't cast the demon out. Why? Because they didn't have faith. A lack of faith is an unanswered prayer. When we come to God, we must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. And James says the same thing, right? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach to be given to him. And verse 6 of James chapter 1 says this, But let him ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. There's a reason why God doesn't answer prayer. Sometimes because we don't believe. We're just saying words, but our hearts don't really believe that's going to be answered. I know I've prayed, prayed plenty of prayers like that. Just kind of wishing and hoping, but not really believing. But God, God longs for us. Like I'm not sure you remember when the people of Israel entered the, the promised land after defeating Jericho, or maybe before, Jer before Jericho. It was when the priests started walking and the toes hit the tip of the water that the water spread out for them to be able to pass across. That's what God wants us to do. He wants us to, to go and step out in faith and believe and trust. Well, there's another reason why prayers go unanswered. It's because of a lack of purpose to glorify God. Because it's selfish. 
One of the verses I quoted earlier, John 14, 13 and 14. Whatever you ask in My name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask Me anything in My name, I will do this. Notice here the connection between in His name and for the Father's glory. Whatever you ask in My name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified. Right In the name of Jesus, such that God is glorified. And many times people make prayers and requests of God without even thinking or having any uh, idea of God being glorified through these things. That's what the name of Jesus says, according to the will of Jesus, right? When we say in Jesus' name, we're, we're looking for the glory of God. The Son might be glorified. And we pray with lack of purpose, glorify God. We ought not to expect that our prayers would be answered. I mean, this is like praying for the yacht. <laughs> yeah, I'll do a yacht ministry, right? That doesn't quite fit it. James says, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. You may spend it on your own pleasures. Rules out those kind of prayers, right? God, let me win the lottery. No, you shouldn't risk what you have earned like that. God isn't a genie who gives us anything we want. We need to align ourselves with God's purposes and God's glory. But if there are things you pray for, and there are lots of things you can pray for that are in line with God's glory, believe that they are. Prayer is going to answer because of a lack of obedience. Thirdly, again, 1 John 3.22, whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. We receive because we're obedient children. In other words, a disobedient life has no reason to expect that it will receive answers to prayer. The psalmist says, Psalm 66, verse 18, If I regard wickedness in my heart, O Lord, You will not hear that is, God won't hear our prayers so as to act. He won't act if we regard wickedness in our hearts. God says, when you spread out your hands in prayer, He said to the people in Israel, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply your prayers, I will not listen. Why? Because your hands are covered with blood. Disobedience is a reason why prayer isn't answered. You must tie a life of obedience to expectant prayer as well. So why Jesus meant when He said, if you abide in Me and My words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. Right? When we abide in Jesus and we're with Him, the, the things that we want are the things that He wants and the things that He wants are the things that He wants us to pray for for His kingdom to be glorified. Maybe you've heard the story of the captain of the ship who encountered George Mueller. Another George Mueller story. He was a man of prayer. And here's what the captain said. We had George Mueller of Bristol on board and I had been on the bridge for 24 hours and never left it. And George Mueller came to me and said, Captain, I've come to tell you I must be in Quebec Saturday afternoon. They're sailing across the pond from England to Quebec. And the captain said, It's impossible, I said. Then very well, if your ship cannot take me, God will find some other way. <laughs> I have never broken an engagement in 57 years. Let us go down into the chart room and pray. The captain said, I looked at that man of God and thought to myself, what lunatic asylum can that man have come from? I have never heard of such a thing as this. Mr. Mueller, I said, do you know how dense this fog is? No, he replied. My eye is not on the density of the fog, but on the living God who controls every circumstance of my life. He knelt down and he prayed one of the most simple prayers. When he had finished, I was going to pray, but he placed his hand on my shoulder and told me not to pray. As you do not believe, he will not answer. And as I believe he has, there is no need whatsoever for you to pray about it. It's a subtle rebuke. I looked at him and George Mueller said, Captain, I've known my Lord for 57 years and there's never been a single day where I have failed to get an audience with the king. Get up, Captain, and open the door and you will find the fog is gone. I got up and the fog indeed was gone. And on that Saturday afternoon, George Mueller kept his promised engagement. It's a great story about George Mueller. Don't know if it's true or not, but it's a wonderful picture even of what it means to pray and believe and to see God do great things as opposed to the captain. Well, how could George Mueller pray this way? Because of years of obedience of walking with the Lord and praying with the Lord. And if today maybe you're not experiencing the joys of answered prayer, consider maybe it's got a lack of faith or a lack of vision for the glory of God or maybe just downright disobedience in your life. But the promises of great are great for what Christ says and He just wants us to ask. 
He wants us to believe, right? Believe, pray, and thirdly... Believe, pray, and thirdly... Forgive. Here we go. Let's look at my final point. Forgive. And again, we see a tie here with praying. Maybe in the, the worship context. When you stand praying. Simple word. Forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. But if you do not forgive, neither your Father who is in heaven will forgive your transgressions. Right? We, we see the, the overlap here against a praying. You're, you're praying. And he hits this issue of forgiveness. Why does he hit this issue of forgiveness? I'm not exactly sure, but, but perhaps it has to do with him inspecting and, and you know, this whole context of him inspecting and looking at people. One of the things he really looks at is, is forgiveness. How, how do we forgive? Do we understand forgiveness? Because that shows a lot about how God will present Himself, will come to us. Jesus said similar things to this in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and there you remember your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Similar context, right? You're you're there, you're praying, you're standing and you remember you have something against your brother. You just leave it there and then you go and deal with that. That's why it's important for you to just evaluate yourself, examine yourself before you come to church. Just... uh, just to be clear in a clear conscience worshiping the Lord. But here's the same idea, right? Trying to come with a pure heart. In this matter of forgiveness, it's like Paul said, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. You know, there are people out there, you can try everything that you can do. You can beg for forgiveness, you can ask for forgiveness, you can seek to make things right and just things aren't right. Well, it's off of your shoulders. But you can do that before you come and so come. But... Jesus is saying, don't, don't play your game of religion. Don't make a show of your prayers going through the motion expecting the Lord to respond to your prayers. He cast everyone out of the temple who were just playing on the outside. Don't stew up bitterness in your hearts toward others. He's just talking about release it. Right? Let it go. And the result of an attitude that won't forgive, that's going to keep it inside, is tragic. Look at verse 25 again. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that, that's a purpose clause, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. Forgive so that your Father also will forgive. God's forgiveness of you is tied to the way that you forgive others. Listen. God's forgiveness of you is tied to the way that you forgive others. That's the point of verse 26. If you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. Now, some of your translations don't have a verse 26. It just skips from 25 to verse 27. The NIV does that. The ESV does that. Though each of them have a, a footnote that says some manuscripts contain this. Uh, the NAS puts it in brackets. Uh, the King James and New King James both include this verse. The New King James includes a a footnote that says some manuscripts, some older manuscripts, omit this verse. Now's not the time and place to talk about manuscript evidence, but just to say this, some of the ancient manuscripts don't have this verse here. But, in some regard, that doesn't matter at all because Jesus said these very words elsewhere. So, the question is, did He say them here or not? Did Mark put them here or not? Or, because He's talking about this topic, did someone else put them in here? We, we, we don't know. It's not important. I have thoughts and opinions on that, but that's what they are. They're just opinions. But turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. And we're done with Mark, so we won't go back there. So you can just go to Matthew chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says here the Lord's Prayer, the way that we ought to pray, the disciples' prayer, right? Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven... Let's say it together, right? It's a good prayer to pray. The Our Father, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. So we forgive our debtors 
And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. There's a prayer. Jesus taught us how to pray. Right? Pray looking to God. He is the holy, sanctified one. And then pray looking to ourselves. We just need daily needs. We need forgiveness. We need to avoid temptations. Great. It's a great prayer. Jesus then at the end here comments on one of the requests in the prayer. Look at verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Almost verbatim what Jesus said in Matthew, Mark chapter 11. So that verse, whether it's in the original or not, it's still true. Jesus said, If you forgive others, the Lord will forgive you. If you don't forgive others, the Lord will not forgive you. Now, it's not that God's forgiveness is based upon your forgiveness of one another. It's tied, but it's not based upon your forgiveness of each other. God forgives us based upon the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that we who trust in Jesus are forgiven. But here's the reality, that those who trust in Christ work out the fruit of that in forgiving others. Exactly like Mark 11, right? Looking for fruit of, for people's lives. Or say it another way, like I like to say it, forgiven people forgive people. Forgiven people forgive people. So sidelight, here's a truism I found as well. Hurt people hurt people. If they felt like they've been hurt, they will go and inflict hurt upon them. But, uh, but forgiven people will forgive people. That's the point that Jesus makes in Matthew chapter 18. I alluded to this last week. I just want to read it in full this week because I think it will help us. Matthew chapter 18. Turn over there. I just told that story last week just summarizing it, but I want us to feel the full weight of everything going on here because this is how clear the Gospel is. This is Matthew 18. This is the context of confronting a brother or sister in Christ. Verse 15, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. If not, bring two or, up, two or more alongside. If he repents, then you've won your brother. If he doesn't, then bring it to the church and tell the whole church about how there's no repentance there. And it's all about forgiveness. It's all about restoring someone. And then Peter puffed up and proud, came and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Now, this was more than even the law required. The law talked about in Amos about four times. Yes, for three times I'll forgive you this, but for four this. And he says, oh, I'll go seven. Is that pretty good? And then Jesus puts him in his place. He says, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven In other words, if someone comes and asks for forgiveness, you need to forgive them. Seventy times seven. Hundreds of times. I don't care. I don't care what they've done. Hundreds of times forgiveness should be extended. And then, he says, for this reason the kingdom of God may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he began to settle them, one who owed him ten thousand talents was brought to him. Now, you have a footnote there. A talent is worth more than 15 years' wages of a laborer. All right, so think about this. He owed him 10,000, 15 years' labor. Okay? My math. That's how you're liking math now, right? How many times is that? He got, it's wonderful. SR's like this, math, this artsy guy, right? But he's got in this Rock Valley class of love and math. It's like blowing a Vondi out of the water. You love math, right? 10,000 talents. Each talent is 15 years labor. That is how many years labor? Huh? Okay. He struggles with his math. Who maybe can can help? Wonderful. Three billion dollars. I'll repay, is what he says. Look. But since he did not have means to repay, (laughs) the Lord commanded him. How could he get such a debt that big? You think at some point the, the banks would stop? 
I alluded to it last week, I think it may be that he was a tax collector in the way that, that things are, is that he, he purchases $3 billion of taxes and then he goes and gets $3 billion of taxes with the people or whatever, $5 million for this year and then goes and gets $5 million so he can give it to the people, something like that. Maybe he's an upper-up and he, he's failed on it. Who knows? But he amassed this huge thing. So he's coming to Caesar. He's coming to the big king. Since he did not have the means to repay, the Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment be made. Some kind of justice. So the slave fell to the ground, prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me. I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. It's a picture exactly what Jesus does for us. We could never repay everything. Yet God in His grace forgives us $3 billion forgives us insurmountable debt of, of our sin against the Lord. That, that's the picture here. Verse 28, But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, a hundred days labor. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe! So his fellow slave, deja vu, fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling no, you need to owe me this money. I'm not going to forgive that debt. No way. And he went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So this man apparently was of some power and he, he owed this. And so when his fellow slaves saw what happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. And then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy upon you? And because he didn't forgive as he had been forgiven, his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. And then here's bringing it back to God. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. We've been forgiven all of our transgressions and sins by the Lord. How, how can that flush out in not forgiving our fellow man? Forgiven people forgive people. And the story here isn't so much about a guy losing his salvation. It's that he didn't understand the debt that he had been forgiven and the grace that he needs to show as a result of that. Now let me make a caveat, okay? This is taking the whole bigger Bible into, into scope here with respect to forgiveness. Um, this doesn't mean that we forgive everybody of everything. Even God doesn't do that. There are people that God doesn't forgive, Right? Unrepentant, unbelieving, rebellious people will not receive the Lord's forgiveness, right? What will they receive? They'll receive the wrath of God. His grace has been offered in Jesus Christ. They've rejected it. He will punish them with His wrath for all eternity. And listen, it's only right for God's justice to come upon the unrepentant. They're just paying for their own sins. In Revelation 6, we see the martyrs who are under the altar... And, and these, these are people who have who've been killed because of the testimony of the Word of God they maintained. These are Christians in heaven. And they say, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will You refrain from judging and avenging our blood with those who dwell on the earth? In other words, we've been killed by these people for the sake of Christ. And how long are You going to refrain from, from judging them and pouring out Your wrath upon them? And God says, Just be patient. I've got my number of martyrs and they're not dead yet. They've got to be killed. When every last martyr that I've decreed will be killed, then I'll deal with them. But you just wait. You just wait. Now these are, are Christians in heaven. They're saved, they're forgiven, and they're crying out for vengeance. Is that wrong? Are they being unforgiving? I say it's not wrong. God doesn't say to them, oh, you are so unforgiving. He just says, wait, my justice will come. Just not quite now. And they're crying for God's justice to prevail. They're crying that God would destroy those who destroyed them. And those cries are right. But listen to this. 
If the murderers who killed these Christians then would repent and turn of their sin, these martyrs underneath the altar would be the first one to forgive them. Welcome into the joy of your Master. Chris Bronze is very helpful in his book, Unpacking Forgiveness. He's a pastor down in Stillman Valley. We do some things with our church together. And, and he asked the question, how should I respond to the unrepentant? And he gives two answers. First of all, he says, resolve not to take revenge. Revenge is not ours to take. Romans chapter 12, 19, the Scripture is clear. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. And so even the, um, the, the souls underneath the altar, they're not seeking to avenge things of themselves. Even the precatory Psalms of the Old Testament, it doesn't say, I'm going to get them, God. It says, no, God, you get them. Because vengeance is mine. Let God meet it out because He can meet it out unlike any of us are doing. And that's what those underneath the altar are doing. They're crying for God's vengeance because only He can deal out perfectly punishment as His due. So how should I respond to the unrepentant? Those who have hurt, those who have done, and, and, and yet they're not, they're not seeking forgiveness in any way. What, how should I respond to them? Well, don't seek vengeance. Secondly, proactively show love. Is this not what God does with the unrepentant? God does good and gives rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying, season, satisfying hearts with food and gladness. He extends the offer of forgiveness at the cross of Christ. He comes with grace and mercy. The message of, of truth comes. And He deals with us in love until repentance hits. Let me close with a story about the Willis family. You probably remember them. On November 8, 1994, Scott and Janet Willis were driving through the Milwaukee area on I-94 with their six youngest children in the minivan. They had left a couple hours before from Chicago and they had fun singing and laughing together. As I remember, he was a pastor. Is that right? I think he was a pastor of a church. They had fun singing and laughing together in the first part of the trip, but then they stopped and got gas. They encouraged the children to get some sleep. The three older children were not with them. They had nine children, six in the car with them. And when he was able, Scott Willis described what transpired on I-94 that November day. I was looking at the road and was, was alert, and our little baby was behind us. Ben was behind us on the other side. In the back were the other four children, and they all were buckled in. I saw the object, a metal brace, six inches by 30 inches, about 30 pounds. I thought it was one of those blocks that maybe came off a flatbed truck. And the car in front of me swerved, and I knew I couldn't miss hitting the object. I thought if I took it on the tire, it, I might roll the car. It was a split second decision. And when we hit the object, the rear gas tank exploded, taking the car out of control. And I was able to grip the wheel and take the car out of the slide. When we were sliding and the flames were coming out of the seat, it was a shock, a surprise. Like, what is this? It was just roaring flames coming up on both sides. I was yelling to get out of the car. Janet and I had to consciously put our hands into the flames to unbuckle the seat belts and to reach for the door handles. Their kids are inside caught. This is 18 years ago. Some of you kids don't remember this. How many parents remember this? All of us do. Janet fell out of the door while the car was still moving. Our son Benny was in the midst of the burning. His clothes were mostly burned off by the time he got out. The five youngest children who had been asleep died instantly. No sound was heard by Janet or me as we struggled to get out of the van. An unknown man took his shirt off his back to soak Benny's wounds and another beat out the burning clothes on Janet's back. Benny died in intensive care around midnight. And then Chris Bronze writes, If possible, the tragedy got even worse for Scott and Janet Willis. They had found some comfort in knowing that their children had died instantly, but months later they learned that there were signs of some of the children struggling to get out of the van. Their son Benny lost consciousness at the scene. They assumed he did not regain it before he died, but a hospital worker told them that he was alive and alert in the hospital. He had asked her to hold his hand, but she was unable to do so because of his burns. He had asked her to pray with him. And then Scott and Janice Willis learned that the driver of the semi had obtained his license illegally because of the corruption under George Ryan, who's in prison, future governor of Illinois at that time, state, Secretary of State. Licensing facilities had accepted bribes that allowed unqualified drivers to receive licenses. These bribes became a part of Ryan's campaign fund. Ironically, Janice Willis had voted for Ryan the very morning of the accident. 
On the morning of the accident, the driver ignored repeated warnings from other drivers that a large piece of metal was going to fall off the back of his truck. It all seemed so senseless and so preventable. So Scott and Janice Willis had to decide how to relate to a driver who should have heeded warnings, who should not have been on the road in the first place. They had to decide how to treat a politician whose corrupt values had played a part in their children's deaths. In the short run, it would have been easiest to gravitate to one or two extremes. Okay? one of the things that Chris is trying to get at in this book. They could have been angry and vindictive. They could have hated the politicians who allowed unqualified drivers to get a license through a bribe. Or, they could have granted automatic forgiveness. Unlike God, right? This would have meant that there would have been no accountability for actions. Instead of either of these extreme choices, the Willis family chose to live out the principles of Romans chapter 12, which I talked to you. Don't seek vengeance but yet love actively. This is evident from the letters that they sent to a U.S. district judge, including this one written recently by Janet. So here's what she wrote to a judge. My husband and I have prayed and asked God to keep us from bitterness and to help us be faithful to Him as He has, and we tried to honor God by not complaining. But there's a time to speak, and I'm sharing these facts only because... I believe if justice rules, wrongdoing will be deterred. I have learned that when God's judgments come upon the earth, the people of the world learn righteousness. Though grace is shown to the wicked, they do not learn righteousness. Even in a land of uprightness, they go on doing evil. Isaiah 26, 9 and 10. And Scott Willis later added his thoughts to her letter. Janet and I are ordinary people, not powerful, not forceful. Our children brought great joy to us. Benjamin, Joseph, Samuel, Hank, Elizabeth, and Peter... We're like anybody else's kids, playful, happy, mopey, energetic. The boys love reading and sports, and Elizabeth was her mom's shadow and her doll's mom. We love them. We miss them. We do not despair. We live with a God-promised hope in Jesus Christ. Almost 12 years have passed since November 8, 1994. The heartache remains, but has softened. Janet and I have prayed not to have a bitter or revengeful spirit, These feelings have only occasionally flared up, but have not consumed or dominated our thoughts and are not the motive for this letter. Our thoughts are not on punishment, for that is for the court to decide. The real tragedy is that no reconciliation has yet been attained between George Ryan and Janet and me. My wife and I have a strong desire to forgive Governor Ryan, but it must be an honest basis, sorrow and admission. Even a six-year-old boy knows when he's done wrong, he needs to be truly sorry and admit it. Then forgiveness and mercy can be graciously offered. That would be our joy. I think too oftentimes there's tragedies and people just say, oh yeah, I forgive these people who've done that, whether it's the Colorado shooting and, and that misleads. That's not what this is talking about, this, this text here. It speaks exactly the, the tension. I, God, God will venge and will show active love. I, I, I long to reach out, but... But we can't be restored in forgiveness until repentance is, is offered and a confession is, is there. But you need to have the attitude that, that the Willis's have. Did you catch that attitude? Totally willing, wanting to restore, wanting to forgive, wanting to get things back right, and would do that. They have sought to do that, but there's been no response to the other side. They don't hold anything against them. It's not they got bitterness, all right? But they're just saying, God, your justice will prevail and rule. Actively loving, probably should be actively praying for the George Ryan and, and others. Well, if you're here this morning and struggling with how to respond to others who've hurt you, maybe, maybe that's a mountain that needs to be cast into the sea. Some hurts are that bad. I was with someone recently who was um, just sobbing sobbing in tears because of what people have done to hurt. There's just a, a hurtfulness that can come just through relationships that's it's the biggest amount in many ways. But anyway, we need to believe what the Lord Jesus says. We need to pray to the Lord and we need to forgive. Let things off our chest and trust the Lord with those things. Let's pray. Father, I pray that You would put these things into action for us. God, may we be those who believe and trust the promises of God, Your power. May believe, be those who pray to You. So I really believe the most important meeting we have at our church 
Here's a Sunday morning prayer meeting when we all get together and pray, as we did this morning. Shared and talked about you for 15 minutes and prayed for 15 minutes. God would pray that you would just enlarge that time. God, I would pray that husbands and wives would pray together. So I know how, what a battle that is, even for Yvonne and I, to do that regularly. It's hard. For parents to be praying with their children. For roommates to be praying with roommates. For small groups to be praying with small groups. That we would be a praying people, believing and trusting you for great things. And I pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us with uh, a heart of forgiveness that longs to see hurts restored and healed and helped. Help us to see forgiveness in a right way. That's the basis of how we come to you. Even as we start our service this morning, Isaiah chapter 6, I am undone. And the seraphim took the coal from the altar and touched it to my lips and said, You are forgiven. And God, may we know the forgiveness that God gives to us through Jesus Christ and extend that freely to others. Help us, O Lord, in these real practical things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.